She likes almost everything she knows about him. But lots of what she knows is in her own imagination. He's willing to promise the world, but he is probably unable to give even himself. What a lovely picture this bride and groom make. They might have found each other, but instead they have remained strangers. Each is a dream in the other's mind. They don't want to accept each other as they really are. They would rather change each other to satisfy their own ambitions. That's why they are doomed to fail. This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Roman Candle. The song is Mad Girl's Love Song. For those of you wondering what the deal with this band is, from Las Vegas, and I follow the singer of the band, been in contact via social media and email about their digital artwork, and so I was following and I saw this amazing video of these kids in like a DIY skate park in this pool section. Everyone's hopping around and the music was discordant and chaotic and holy shit, the amount of people that like commented and shared it. And it's like one of them bathroom early morning death scrolls where you're looking at the internet and what was going on the night before. And um, it hit me mainly because there are so many like things that reminded me of like being young and that some of these cool awesome shows in like the Stalag 13s and the, the more DIY spaces and I don't think I need to tell anybody but Las Vegas isn't a place where everybody goes and hits every single tour but they have this awesome like a vets hall or something that I know a bunch of tours go through 
but it was cool to see them in this like skate space. It reminded me almost like if the yard had like a bowl section instead of the, the straight half pipe ramps that they got. And so to change it up a little bit, I wanted to just put them out there and just show people that there's amazing bands from more than just the coast and the cool places and they're doing fantastic music. Very, I would say Roman Candle has an element that would definitely get them on any R5 production show from the late 90s through the 2000s. So got links in the bio or not in our bio, but on our website, T-I-H-E podcast to check it out. And also Piper's artwork's awesome. Um, I was looking at it and I'm like, you know, when art, digital art is so fucking cool, but you're like, what do I do? I just throw fucking 10 band names all over this art and then it looks like shit. But hopefully eventually figure out something that we could do to incorporate the art. And uh, yeah, I love knowing that there's bands that are just not on these, you know, publicist regurgitated fucking list that we see all the time. And also to see Vegas pop up with a band, it's been cool. So check them out. While we're at it, um, January 27th, which is tonight, Takedown Records, in conjunction with Late Brigade Collective, present Pain of Truth, End It, Restraining Order, Threat to Society, and Hold My Own. Doors are at 5 o'clock. Damn, these motherfuckers don't got jobs. Show is at 6 p.m. So Greg and Jake, John. Oh, not Jake. What the fuck is saying? Jake, Dylan. Dylan from fucking Takedown Shackled. Big motherfucker. And then, I believe, unless I'm mistaken, Saturday is the Baltimore Trapped Under Ice show. And then Sunday is the Bulldoze Trapped Under Ice show. Courtesy of Scanlon. Weekend of Bulldoze, some sick shit. Hardcore's in, moving in the fucking right direction. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's not the same old guys doing this shit. There's tons of new people involved, you know. My friend Dylan, his takedown records. I got old Carter down there in the south bitching and moaning on his bumper stickers, but he still has From Within. Thankfully, Philadelphia's got Seed of Pain and Lennon. You know, Seos. All you know, we got the we got the real draft picks and left that fucking Carter down there. But in general, we got some great fucking shows because we have some great fucking bands and we got some great fucking people that do the shows. Besides me, you know, I mean, Bob Wilson's a fucking killer. There's so many cool shows. I will just go into um, just there's just like so many. I mean, also just having Photo Club, just having. The media, media VFW, just having these extra little places. And then I can just tell you the smart move to do is to get yourself to phillyhcshows.com. There's going to be more shows. There was just a Gorilla Biscuit show, which Greg added because he sold out his other one at Atlantic City. And um, that shit will probably also sell the fuck out. So make sure that you are tied in, checking out our socials, and we'll do a a better job of making sure all this shit is updated, of course. And because this is this is hardcore podcast, this is hardcore. It will be the first weekend of August.
Got some cool shit. Can't talk about it because I, I'm I'm a firm believer in jinxing. So when you start dropping, oh, we got this, and it doesn't come all the way through, um, you know, it's the jinx. You just don't want to go ahead and you know blurt out some. Oh, we got this. I, I've seen it so many times. I I am not faithless or faithful. I'll just say that if everything works out. We're going to have four fucking days straight of some awesome shows and a dance party and then all this other cool shit and adding to the atmosphere, as I said before, about this hardcore. But the mainstay of this conversation that I'm having with whoever's listening today is going to be centered on a couple things. And the first thing to bring up is that despite the fact that there really isn't too many options for most things in America as far as consumerism, capitalism, yada, yada, yada. There definitely is still options in the DIY world. When I say options is you could be a fool's game and book your own shows and link up with the people in the towns that you want to play and link up with the bands in the towns that you want to play. And then because you're from a town at home, you book that band in your hometown, and then they do the same thing. And that's how this whole thing really didn't start that way, but that's how that thing, the commerce of the day, works out. I wash your hand, you wash mine, everybody looks out for each other, and in the end, the scene improves because we're helping each other out. And some of that got lost and it got lost for a lot of different reasons. And it's not always on the evil of the booking agent or the evil of the corporate promoter or shitty venue. Uh, you know, you could look at a old settlement sheet for the Sex Pistols. And, and you'll find that <laughs> they were probably paid so much less than what they were worth considering their tour, considering what they were impactfully to instigate or stimulate the young culture that was punk rock at the time when it came through. And a lot of it just comes down to the beginning of any culture. There is, number one, there's people that are not only just pioneering it, but there's fertile ground, but there's not a proven track record. So... There's going to be people getting ripped off. There's going to be people, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, so to speak. I've heard a million stories about different places ripping off the bands. I've, I mean, but look at anything from like 76 to <laughs> 2022. There's going to be people writing graffiti in the bathrooms. 20 more people on the guest list than you thought. You know, bands trying to not pay for beer from the club and try to get it, you know, like there's always back and forth. And so you almost get to the point where you go, well, who, who shot the first shot? I don't think that's important. I think it's important to understand that really it was Greg Jinn and Bukowski from Black Flag that had a huge hand, not the only hand, but a huge hand in carving out, like, and I've mentioned this a couple of times on different podcast episodes here, carving out like a little Oregon trail, like a way that, they could put the Black Flag machine out on the road 
which also carried the SST flag, or SST, not D, the SST flag across the country and would sign different bands that would become huge and so impactful to modern music that you wouldn't even guess that it came from an old radio parts building in a weird part of Southern California. But that's the nature of the game, right? And so when I think about what we're starting to lose, as I said on other episodes talking about different aspects of this, there was a band out there who would much rather pay someone 10% of $250, which is 25 bucks. So, okay, it's 250 Okay, we'll take 225 You take the 25 So we get on a show that they probably could have got by just sending the email. So they're paying this $25, and maybe that's what's going to get them the 250 because someone else might not ask for it. But they're not going to get the 250 from everybody. And there are certain bands that recently were capped on the internet that have the manager booking agent bullshit kind of got people pulling at them. And, and yeah, you know what? You're getting the money because you're paying it out. You're not getting the money because you're worth it. And you're going to people that don't know that you're not worth it. But real recognizes real, right? You're always going to have someone who doesn't want to do the dirt work. Uh I'll pay someone else to dig the foundation. We just want to pour the concrete slab, right? That kind of fucking deal. It's not the way it goes. Because intrinsically to everything is this education that comes at the beginning of you as a younger person taking the time to put a band together and then get out on the road. So paying someone to get you another $100, $200, $300, if that's even plausible... You're paying someone to give you fiscal advantage, but you're losing the firsthand experience and firsthand know-how. So maybe this first, maybe this is your first or second band, and you're doing all right, getting a buck fifty or two hundred because you got somebody asking for it. That band goes away. Maybe your next band, you don't have the same kind of luck. And now you got to go around and tout the fact that you used to be in this other band and I was getting paid 200 bucks. But have you gone ahead and just booked the damn thing yourself? You'd already have that knowledge. That knowledge never leaves. In my sleep, I could write a 28-day show, uh, tour. Because I can do it. I've been doing it since I was fucking 18 turning 19, learning from the greatest there ever was, Chris Spear, Dysphoria, Episode 3 this podcast you should check it out um yeah i can just do it i don't try to book bands for a living because again what am i going to do take 250 dollars from a promoter that made gross 700 dollars for the whole show and then tell some band that needs every fucking dollar to fill up that gas tank yo i got you uh 250 so can i get my 25 bucks and let's be real here, 30-day shows, maybe if you're just an email cat, no no texting, no calling, you might get away with booking a 30-day tour at an hour of work per day or per day of the tour, so 30 hours, 
30 hours of hard work, $25 an hour. If you're getting the band 250, let's look at that. I mean, if you can figure out a way to get 30 shows for a band who gets paid 250, you let me know. Because I'm going to tell you that's only 750 bucks before taxes. Before taxes. And I know that's a good living if you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. But let's be real here. You ain't got no insurance. So you break your fucking hand, you're screwed. And you got nothing for later on. So to me, it's not worth taking the $25 from a band who needs that $25. But be my guest. Jump out there. Add your name to the hat of the booking agents who use the small bands early on to get their name out and get the the catalog of smaller promoters in the arsenal. And then once other bands see, oh, yo, you know, you're taking these small bands and making sure they get money, could you get us some kind of money? Could you get us $500 a night? Now that, promote, now that booking agent's looking at 30 times 50, 1,500 just doubled. It's doubled off a single tour. Whew. Just by getting $500 a night for a band. I'm going to tell you, I don't know every single band and what they're getting, but I know that <laughs> the tours that we come in, some of these bands that might get $1,500 on a fest, or if they headline their own show and the promoter was being honest, they might get a thousand on these support tours. What are they getting? You're seeing bands when they do the support, yeah, you're getting two fifty, three hundred, maybe a little bit more. Who knows? Five hundred. If the band headline is gregarious and willing to share. And ultimately, everybody that I've seen in the recent times eventually end up working with someone who eventually wants to go work for a bigger company and do bigger things. And yeah, listen, I don't I don't really have anything that I have a lot of really good friends who are booking agents, a lot of friends who are managers. And and I I find all of it to be just like anything else. If that's what you want to do, do it. You're gonna find people that are going to be really good at the job. But I I look at it differently in the sense of like I see too many people not be able to immediately jump out with a roster of successful non-hardcore bands so they almost use hardcore bands as like the entry level it's always been that way hardcore punks the entry level to so many of these things and then once success is proven then they either get to a bigger agent, now they're the junior agent under a bigger agent, or maybe they got lucky and they're part of an agency. And all that money, you know, they're not getting all the same amount, but now they're part of the agency that, you know, they got a cool at next to their name and all this shit. And they're wheeling and dealing, you know, going out to lunch, taking calls, table it. Let's table this right now. I'm going to table this thought. Love when it hit. I love when I get tabled. I fucking love the entire music industry slang. 
cracks me the fuck up. And, and they, they are worming their way, like a worm truly does, digging a fucking hole in the dirt and working their way to something bigger, something more lucrative. I don't fucking blame them. That's just called career advancement. And, and if we want to use that same terminology and, and apply it to the hardcore bands, where's the career advancement? It ain't going to be a uniform choice. This fool's game's good, but they ain't the next to man ball. Because if we're being honest here, art is different than numbers, checks, balances, and financial receipts. Art is permanent. You can be similar to something else, but you don't want to be too similar. You don't want to be too dissimilar either. So you're kind of fucked. So like the band is like, we're the next mad ball. They come out there audaciously saying this with a demo. At the minimum, someone should punch them in the fucking mouth. At the at the at the most lenient, they could get laughed off Twitter. <laughs> you know? Like you gotta earn some of this shit. But no one's ever gonna be another mad ball. No one's ever gonna be another agnostic front. There's gonna be no other uniform choices in the world. So you gotta be unique. And the uniqueness makes it hard for someone who wants to cut that check, get that mortgage. Because uniqueness comes with the potential for artist failure or artist, you know, changing the script. And I think what happened is, is long time ago, booking agents weren't interested in hardcore punk bands till they were massive. But managers of bands were kind of in the pockets. I think earlier, obviously, Malcolm McLaren's probably the most famous, to me, most famous manager in punk rock. What the fuck do I know? And I think that, you know, just as I said, like, Sex Pistols probably, there's a, I, I gotta find it and post it at some point. I always fucking, I reference it, but never post it. It's my fucking biggest mistake. If I ever had Joe Rogan's money, I'd have a Jamie. Only be Kevin Hare. He'd bring up right what the fuck it is. And, um, but, yeah, Malcolm McLaren's also had, you know, fucking shit ton of money for fucking the Pistols, even in England, way after they were getting fucking robbed in America. And that's, it's kind of how it's always been. The clubs are shitty, dishonest. The bands are stealing, breaking shit, fucking shit up, showing up two hours late. Kids are getting into fights. There's tons of gangs. <laughs> you know, hardcore has some wild shit now, but I, there's, to me, and maybe I'm just biased hard, but like, I challenge you to read five or six books from 1977 to 1986 in hardcore and then try to take that and apply it across to modern day hardcore and techno technologically aside and the ability to communicate within a finger click of a button aside, nothing touches the chaos and the organic insanity that culturally everybody signed in on. And so it made clubs not want to do hardcore shows. Halls would get fucked up. Cops were legitimately in the streets. Kids were legitimately fighting the cops. And, you know, there was more lucrative shit than punk rock. There was fucking heavy metal growing. You know, that Metallica and shit was growing. And, and, but, you know, like all things, as an underground f swells and builds and an SST becomes, you know, the hit makers doing shit like Mid, Pu uh, Mid Puppets and Sonic Youth and all this. Yeah, there's still some real fucking ties in hardcore. So then they have to, they can't devalue it because there's still a lot of fucking validity in these 
small boutique labels releasing all this crazy shit that becomes this massive college hit because college radio is a fucking thing. And so no one was ever, no one has ever been completely clear and honest on either side of the table. And I, 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 I see this in old biographies and just conversations and YouTube videos with, you know, discussions with the like lit at the time some of them are dead now different members of the Ramones and talk about like you know what they you know how they didn't have money and all this shit and all the reasons why and all this fucking back and forth there's just a lot of deception and people just not trusting each other so I could see to some small degree the need to bring and I've said this when I had like Tim Moore and shit on the podcast like there needs to be an Andy Rice and James Vitalo just the need to be someone to regulate and kind of hold the reins and make sure the bands are getting taken care of and the right things are there. And this whole thing is just to say that it, there isn't one exactly handshake that isn't a little skewed one more favorable to the other, depending who really carries the weight. If you're a new band, you're going to be willing to take less money for exposure. The bigger your band is, the less you need to be exposed and the more you need to protect what you already have by not, you know, just carrying dead wood. Dead wood is a term for the tickets that aren't sold at a show, but dead wood, from my context right here, is bringing out bands that aren't going to bring anybody also to a show. Typically, a band would bring two to three bands for a tour package And those bands have to have value, but because of what we just said, the fucking handshaking, the tabling, the, you know, let me call you back, the dinners, the lunch type manager, booking agent type people, they ain't trying to bring in people who aren't in the system because they're not signed up. Can't make $25 off the $250 band unless they're working for you. Or unless they want to pay you. And some of these bands, like these Fool's Games, that Clemo ain't giving nobody $25. Shit, that ain't happening. So, some of these bands are going to take a little longer to get up that ladder. But the band that's going to be in the ladder, yeah, we'll get them $250, but they might not be worth $100 to the promoter. That's the way it fucking works. It's a fucked up world out here. So, The thing I would say is, before you get yourself jammed up in chasing down a booking agent, chasing down a manager, chasing down a publicist, social media manager, spending money on followers, just be a fucking band. Just get in the van. And I also think that people who are not hip to that book by Henry Rollins should just get it because it's fucking, if if you don't read that and get excited, you just quit. Go work right at fucking Denny's and just give up your fucking life, you loser. But in a more serious note, the, the, the way that it's skewed, there's always a back and forth. Booking agents versus the promoters. Promoters trying to either get a ban and, you know, there's always these sly ways that they sneak money this way. Everyone's fucked up and money's always the fucking problem. And it shouldn't be. But it, it, in reality, money's the problem in the whole world. So why the fuck wouldn't it fall down the hardcore as well? So as I'm talking about all this shit and rambling on here, I I had this Sonny go ahead and take me some clips from this awesome C-SPAN shit, um, courtesy of PBS 
the YouTube channel for PBS. Fucking fantastic. Two point, actually two point eight or two point nine hours, almost a full three hours of Congress ripping into fucking Live Nation and basically accusing them of being a monopoly. Monopoly. Do you know what a monopoly is? And not the fucking guy with the fucking monocle and the stupid feet and his cards and the get out of jail free card, dickhead. The real fucking deal. A monopoly is a market structure where a single seller or producer assumes dominant position in an industry or sector. Monopolies are discouraged in free market economies as they stifle competition and limit substitutes for consumers. And to be honest, even in the micro level of the hardcore punk scene, there's good arguments that like at different times, like Revelation dominated, but were they a monopoly? Maybe back in like 1986, the end of Wishing Well, when Rev really started kicking in the gear. But I mean, there was bigger, there was SST and other giant, you know, indies that were already active, you know, um, so... It's hard to it's hard to say. You know, Victory wasn't quite the monopoly, but they did use their power and their place in the structure to create a scenario where bands would sell their firstborn child to get on Victory and do whatever it takes because they saw the avenue towards success to be paved in Tony Brummel. And so when it comes to monopolies there is a real thing that does fuck up everything. And CB- CNBC and now Vox and Rolling Stone and, you know, this has been all through Congress. It's, it's finally, really, it's um getting some play. You know, to see the Senate Judiciary hearing go ahead and, and just fucking... Rip, rip into them is fucking perfect. And, and again, this was something that way back in 2009 was seen as a fucking problem. You know, um, the issue stems from the merger of the world's biggest concert vendor, which is Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster is the, not just America... You know, not just the East Coast, the whole fucking world, Ticketmaster's the biggest. And Live Nation fucking merged. So the biggest promoter in the world merged with the biggest ticket. That leaves so many things to just say, yeah, how do, you know, how could you not see this going bad for everybody else? And when you're at Live Nation, because you're the biggest. You're just like the fucking booking agent I was talking about, trying to pick up the new things. Only Live Nation gets these fucking deals with like the U2s, the Madonnas, the the the. I think if I'm if I remember this, uh, Bruce Springsteen. I'm trying to think else. There was Bruce Springsteen and like one or two other people. Like, no, this isn't good. You know, and the thing about it is, is this all came to light because of the Taylor Swift thing. And so there was a time in America where antitrust, uh, 
laws were taken seriously. But now that there's so much grift in the American Congress, and so many Congress people are playing the stock market based upon votes that they have on the House and the Senate floor, that, you know, the inmates are running the asylum here. And um, a lot of it is based upon the convenience fees. And so the Justice Department in 2009 in the Obama era did um, did go ahead and investigate. But I don't know who whose palms or whatever got greased, but I would go as far as to say that they fucked up in 2009 letting those two come together. And after years of seeing all the bullshit, seeing the crazy fees, and how that trickles down, I'm going to get to that later, um, we're only now seeing people come out and say, yeah, this is a bad move. This is a this is bad for business. This is an antitrust. This is a monopoly. But any of us could have seen it. You know? Um, and, and I should say that the Taylor, the Taylor Swift thing was the biggest deal. You know, there is a true monopoly here. I hope that they do the right thing. But um, Hey 56 Sonny goes ahead and brings me some clips from the YouTube so I can cut this up. Oh, one more thing, just so you have context here. Live Nation controls a huge portion of this market. Something like 70 total percent, which is domination, which isn't healthy because then if you're the only person who owns something and you're selling it to everybody else, you can do whatever the fuck you want because where else are they going to go? And that's the argument at play here. Hold on a second. You know, if if I'm if there's only one this is article, I get to do whatever the fuck I want. No, it was never that way. There was shit before us, there's shit after us. You know, two thousand six it was us and Santa Fury that came out of the, the fucking the the fires that ended Hellfest and Posse numbers. Then the following year was United Blood and then, you know, there'd be different shit that would pop up, some shit from Massachusetts, you know, different things all over and they would stay, one from North Carolina. You know, there's always some little thing that would pop or something that would work one year and not work another year. Never been a monopoly. And it would have been unhealthy if we had the monopoly. And to some degree I could say with not impunity but there's a good reason like Hellfest at one point in the summer was like the big ticket. And in fact, Crazy Fest in Louisville, Kentucky, who had some really amazing things, kind of said like, yeah, well, you know, just the cost of getting bands to play. Like there's like an, almost an arms race to like, oh, we gonna, and I'm dealing with it now at this hardcore. Like so much money to be offered to these bands playing these things that, you know, Crazy Fest was like, it, it didn't even make sense to keep trying to pay a band that, you know, we are paying this to this. There's a lot of costs to come in this shit. And we're not all Furnace Fest that have Christ money and these backers and shit. So they just pulled out. You know, there was a little bit of that. But it was never a part of this Monopoly thing. But seeing it that way, yeah, it it could be detrimental to any anything. Whether it's oil, wood, any, any commodity, any service should not have one sole person or one sole entity selling because then everything is bereft with fucking bullshit. So I'm going to go little by little through clips that I liked and Sonny happened to go ahead and clip for me. So we're going to play the clip. We'll go over some stuff 
And we'll have some fun with this one. Talk on. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Graham, Senator Klobuchar, and Senator Lee, along with all the other members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, for allowing me to appear before you today. I'm here to speak on behalf of my colleagues, fellow promoters, and most importantly, the concert fans. My appearance before you is based on my 50 years of experience in the live entertainment industry. For the record, my name is Jerry Michelson, CEO and President of Jam Productions, a company that has produced and promoted events since 1972. As a primer for those who may not know, let me briefly talk about the job of promoters. We work with agents and managers to route tours into markets across the country. We make guaranteed payment to artists, contract with the venue to hold the event, market the show, put tickets on sale, and produce the show. We pay all the costs and assume all the risks. When Live Nation loses money on a concert, they can make up for that with operating uh, income from ticketing and sponsorships. We can't do that. We don't have those. Pepsi doesn't earn money from Coke, but our competitor, Live Nation, earns money from selling tickets to our concerts. In 2009, I appeared in front of the committee to testify the about the proposed merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster. At that hearing, I stated the unification of these two Goliaths would create a business with extraordinary market power and clout unlike any that I've ever seen in my lifetime. I testified that if this merger was allowed to produce proceed, the combined entity would have the ability to suppress or eliminate competition in many segments of the industry. Today, we know with certainty that this merger is vertical integration on steroids, using dominance in one market to expand its power and dominance in another, cutting out the competition and harming the consumers. From my point, vantage point, the arena-level concerts used to be Jam's most profitable segment of the business because that's where we earned our money. In 1996, Jam produced 100 concerts in arenas, but in 2011, one year after the merger, that decreased to 46 concerts. And in 2022, we only produced 14 arena concerts. Live Nation went after the arena business, and they succeeded in driving us and other independent promoters out of that sector. Live Nation effectively eliminated competition for indoor arena shows by utilizing the following methods. Purchasing national indoor tours in arenas and for their outdoor amphitheaters. Threatening financial penalties on a tour deal if the artist wanted to work for jam. So everything that I was saying to you regarding the guy who's booking 30 days, blah, blah, blah. Live Nation doesn't have to do that. They have a giant national office where they just kind of go to the booking agent and they say, hey, let's just not even fuck around. We'll buy the whole fucking tour. We got all the spots. Don't even bother rushing and hitting up 25 to 30 different giant arenas or concert halls. We'll use hardcore to explain the situation. And, you know, um, yeah, I'm going to, instead of sending 30 fucking five emails and then might have to send 10 more and deal with all the bullshit. If I just sell this tour 
to this company, they're going to take care of everything. I get my money, the band gets the money, and we're living good, brother. And that's how Live Nation took a huge chunk of American music people out of the equation that quickly just by being like hey we're gonna do it and hey if you want to you know work with so you know if you want to go ahead and you know work with someone else uh you know it's gonna come back to hurt you in the long run very mafia style all right let these guys talk more. paying a band a hundred percent or more of the gross ticket sales and live nation managed artists typically only perform for live nation promoted shows at the arena level now Live Nation is going after music theaters and clubs of all sizes in an effort to control the entire live music industry from the top to the bottom. From 2010 to 2021, Live Nation added 61 theaters and 41 clubs to their already large arsenal of venues. Right. So in Philly, they had the TLA on South Street. And so the TLA would eventually sell. And since... Live Nation had bought the Fillmore. They just rebranded the TLA as the Fillmore at TLA, like some gentrification bullshit. And so what I find how this could go into a totally different sphere, but we'll just take it simply, is some of these smaller houses, or smaller houses like over 500, but not like more than 2,000, because they're pretty small considering the fucking arena is like 20, 15 to 20,000 people. Live Nation buying more of these in these cities allows them to effectively stop the people like the R5 Productions and all the different DIY people. Now, in Philadelphia, and I have to be, I should actually get this out in the front. I work with the Bowery people who live in Philadelphia. Uh, Kevin Horn, who is taught and raised by the beloved late Brian Dilworth, who was a longtime DIY promoter who eventually just got to the point where he had to join a team if he was going to not get kicked out of the game. His story is great. I won't tell it here, but that's the person who got us in the Electric Factory. The Electric Factory was privately owned, and then the Bowery slash AEG, which is Golden Voice, which is like the other Live Nation, but there is no other real Live Nation. Live Nation controls so much of the market. This is like the other team pushing back against it. I work with those folks when I do shows like Underground Arts and Franklin Music Hall. But it's still, because it's Philadelphia, it's still very, very much a DIY to me. Like, not <laughs> They're not DIY, but I feel like I'm dealing with R5 Productions and Sean Agnew. There's not a lot. I mean, there's some emails, but there's no, like, stuffy shoot, suit kind of bullshit. But just to be clear, I do work with that side, so I see a little bit of it. And essentially watching Live Nation have the ability to buy. They typically buy more of the metal tours. Like, they'll buy a big amount of the metal tours. And so, like, where a Philadelphia promoter might have a little bit more inside, some of these tours don't even get openers. And, you know, occasionally from different times, Philly hardcore shows would get, like, co-promotion fees. Like, oh, we'll pay you two or $300. We tend to just be assholes and just get a big guest list, and then we call it even. 
And because, you know, we put out flyers and, you know, they'll say Philly Hardcore Shows presents or whatever, but it's not really our show. The band just wants to make sure that we are promoting at the hardcore level. And so, hey, cool. We'll promote the show. We'll get a bunch of our friends in for free and we'll see the show. I don't know if I'm stupid. I, I definitely don't have an MBA, but it's a lot easier than going to a Live Nation and being like, hey, I need that $250 fucking check that you're going to ask for a W-9 for. You know what I mean? But the, the the hurt, and that's what he just talked about. Like, They have the ability to fiscally control all of the rooms. And we're talking two, three hundred. You know, like this could get really fucking crazy. I, I rattled on too much. Hold on. Those representing the dominant player in the market would contend that their growth has allowed them to innovate and make advances that greatly benefit consumers. A few million Taylor Swift fans would respond, this is why we can't have nice things. To be clear, from our perspective, the issue isn't the Taylor Swift crash per se. That merely revealed how a lack of competition over time has corroded innovation and distorted the market. I would ask, suppose a robust, vibrant, and competitive market for ticketing had been allowed to evolve and innovate over the last 20 years. Would the Taylor Swift crash have occurred? It's a hypothetical, of course, but absolutely one worth considering. I will conclude my remarks with a call to you as policymakers. On this topic, in this arena, consumer welfare is very clear to define, and there are actual harms to consumers from anti-competitive practices. Thank you to all, and I appreciate the opportunity to be before you today. It is an honor to be here today to lend the American Antitrust Institute's perspective to the issue of competition in live entertainment. AAI applauds Senate lawmakers for turning their attention to a serious competition issue that hurts concertgoers, artists, and smaller competitors across the live entertainment industry. There are a few major points and policy recommendations that I would like to highlight today. First, Live Nation Ticketmaster is an example of, on one hand, a very traditional monopoly in the mode of Standard Oil, and on the other, a 21st century digital player, like other online platforms, dominating an ever-widening swath of its industry. Its dominance in markets up and down the live entertainment supply chain creates the incentive and the ability to limit competition to protect its market position. On the concert side, this includes excluding smaller or independent concert promoters and venues. In digital ticketing, this includes excluding ticket resellers and brokers who provide important competition via the secondary ticketing market. Customers pay the price for these monopolistic acts with higher ticket prices and fees, lower quality, less choice, and less innovation. Artists who lack the black blockbuster power of a Swift or a Springsteen lose out. Smaller rivals in the supply chain also lose out. Second, we should learn from the failure of the conduct remedies that were a condition of the DOJ's clearance of the 2010 merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster. A lengthy DOJ investigation concluded in 2020 that Live Nation Ticketmaster repeatedly violated the requirements of the consent decree. Unfortunately, rather than seeking an effective structural remedy, DOJ simply amended some of the language in the consent decree and extended the decree for another five and a half years. The amended decree did nothing to change Live Nation Ticketmaster's anti-competitive incentives. 
This current DOJ has recognized the ineffectiveness of behavioral remedies that run counter to a company's incentives. DOJ should pursue new enforcement action to obtain effective structural relief. This could be through a consummated merger challenge under Section 7 of the Clayton Act or a monopolization case under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Separating ticketing from promotion and venues would eliminate the incentives to stifle competition. And reducing the market share of Ticketmaster through spinoffs would address Ticketmaster's incentives to limit competition in secondary ticketing. Protecting consumers, artists, and smaller rivals from Live Nation Ticketmaster's harmful conduct will, re will require multiple policy tools, including strong antitrust enforcement against Live Nation Ticketmaster and legislative action. AI urges enforcers and lawmakers to consider three major features of a multi-pronged approach to the Live Nation Ticketmaster monopoly problem. First, consider standards that enable the agencies to challenge vertical mergers as effectively as horizontal mergers. The incipiency standard in Section 7 of the Clayton Act is designed to prevent all mergers that may enhance market power and lead to anti-competitive effects. We currently have a structural presumption for horizontal mergers. We badly need a presumption for vertical mergers either through legislative action or new antitrust guidelines that get adopted by the courts. Second, support more vigorous antitrust enforcement with legislation designed to strengthen and clarify the U.S. antitrust laws. Senator Klobuchar's proposed Competition and Antitrust Law Enforcement Reform Act is a leading example. The bill would, among other things, update legal standards for mergers and strengthen the standard for prohibiting exclusionary conduct by dominant firms. Such reforms would reduce the formidable burdens on the government for bringing monopolization and merger cases. Finally, consider the merits of an oversight regime to facilitate access to and transparency in ticketing. Dominant digital platforms can engage in practices designed to self-preference, such as steering music fans to Ticketmaster's proprietary ticketing services. Solutions to these problems may, may well require establishing rules of the road or codes of conduct for digital ticketing platforms. Such legislation has been proposed at both the state and federal level. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. And last but not least is Clyde Lawrence of the band Lawrence. And I will say, looking at your testimony ahead of time, um, uh, Mr. Lawrence, I am particularly enjoyed the line that perhaps you'll repeat that uh, while you are so proud of your band, we're not artists yet on the level of acts like Taylor Swift or Bruce Springsteen, though we do hope one day to be big enough to crash a ticketing website. Uh, with that, I uh, turn it over to you, Mr. Lawrence. Thank you. I hope it'll get as big a laugh when I say it than as when you just did. Um, good morning, Senators, and thank you for inviting us today to the most unique gig we've had in years. My name is Clyde Lawrence, and this is Jordan Cohen. We are two of the eight members of Lawrence, a soul pop band from New York City. Before telling you more about who we are, it's important to clarify who we're not. We're not lawyers or economists with expertise in antitrust policy. And as Senator Klobuchar said, we're also not artists on the level of acts like Taylor Swift or Bruce Springsteen, though we do hope to one day be big enough to crash a ticketing website. What we are, however, are seasoned artists who have toured extensively over the last seven years, starting with empty bars and working our way up to headlining sold-out shows for thousands of people and seeing our music chart on Top 40 Radio. 
While we became musicians because of our passion for making music, we realized early on that we needed to embrace the entrepreneurial aspects of pursuing careers as artists. Ever since we started touring, we've tried to be vocal about the lopsided deal mechanics we were facing, even including the lyric, Live Nation is a monopoly, in our latest album. Whether or not it meets the legal definition of a monopoly is someone else's call to make. We're here just to tell you what we've observed. While Jordan and I discuss those dynamics in depth in our written testimony, most of the issues we face stem from the fact that Live Nation Ticketmaster often acts as three things at the same time, the promoter, the venue, and the ticketing company. Let's imagine we just played a sold out show at a venue Live Nation owns and operates. When an artist plays these venues, they're required to use Live Nation as the promoter. Far from simply advertising, the promoter coordinates and pays the upfront cost to put together a concert, such as renting and staffing a venue and striking a deal with the performer. Since both our pay and theirs is a share of the show's profits, we should be true partners aligned in our incentives. Keep costs low while ensuring the best fan experience. You know, even though this dude's like a soul pop guy, some college guy with a big band, that is exactly how it's supposed to work, in my opinion, is as my job as a promoter is to do my very best to give the artist the best room, with the best possible chance for them to sell the room out, because sometimes a room might be too big for them. We have to discuss it if it's like, oh, you don't want to you know, have Deadwood, you don't want to have, you know, half empty room. And because it works for everybody, a packed house, even a smaller room is better than a half empty room. And it's cool to hear him say that at the Senate floor level, that that is the nature of a good promoter and a good band. And you can include an agent, you can include managers, if they're all in sync with making sure the outcome is the best possible scenario. So all parties end up not only satisfied, but you know, willing to work and do this again and again. And when things like that can come together, that's what makes doing all the shows that I've ever done worth it. And also it keeps people coming back. So yes, little notes here. I wanted to jot in from time to time and there's going to be blocks like we just had where I'm not going to say anything just because I find this very interesting. But with Live Nation not only acting as the promoter, but also as the owner and or operator of the venue, it seriously complicates these incentives. At the end of the show, costs will have eaten into most of the money made that evening, and due to Live Nation's control across the industry, we have practically no leverage in negotiating them. If they want to take 10% of the revenues and call it a facility fee, they can and have. If they want to charge $30,000 for the house nut, they can and have. And if they want to charge us $250 for a stack of 10 clean towels, they can and have. Once these costs, some of which went to Live Nation subsidiaries, are taken into account, the remainder is split between Live Nation and the band. In a world where the promoter and the venue are not affiliated with each other, we can trust that the promoter will look to get the best deal from the venue. However, in this case, the promoter and the venue are part of the same corporate entity, so these line items are essentially Live Nation negotiating to pay itself. Does that seem fair? The tickets were listed at $30, and our pay ended up shaking out to about $12 of each ticket. 
But in this hypothetical show, the fan did not pay $30 for that ticket. The fan paid $42 because Ticketmaster tacked on a 40% fee. And for the record, we've had them go as high as 82%. As with promotion, if an artist plays at a Live Nation venue, the artist has no choice but to have the show ticketed by Ticketmaster. And to be clear, we have absolutely zero say or visibility in how much these fees will be. We find out the same way as everyone else by logging on to Ticketmaster once the show already goes on sale. And in case you're wondering, no, we, the artists, do not get a cent of that fee. So of the $42 a fan spent on a ticket, we received 12. But whereas Live Nation's costs were already covered at this point in the calculation, we still need to pay for our touring costs. In our case, roughly 50% of our earnings is used to cover expenses. So that leaves us with $6 for an eight-piece band, pre-tax, and we also have to pay our own health insurance. To be fair, many of the issues we've addressed here are not exclusive to Live Nation Ticketmaster, and we've had a number of positive experiences with parts of Live Nation. Their venues are often filled with hardworking and passionate people, and most importantly, we love that all of their venues have one consistent Wi-Fi network and password. That one's a real game changer. Jokes aside, we truly do not see Live Nation as the enemy. They're just the largest player in a game that feels stacked against us as artists, and often our fans as well. Ultimately, when looking at the current state of the industry, we're left with lots of questions. Why is it that all of Live Nation's costs get recouped before the show hits its profit point, yet ours, the artists, don't? Why is there so little transparency as to what line items such as facility fees actually go towards? Why is it standard for Live Nation to take a 20% commission on our merchandise sales while we never receive a cent of their ancillary revenues like concessions, alcohol, and parking? Finally, why is Live Nation allowed to freely set exorbitantly high ticket fees without any transparency or input, while in other industries the government has mandated caps on various types of junk fees? After hearing this, there's some really good dialogue from him where he discusses the breakdown on what the band's getting per ticket. From a $42 ticket, they get about 12 More importantly, I also just constantly go back to these ongoing Twitter wars where people are constantly heralding the commercialization of hardcore, and this is better for everybody. And I'm, I'm going to say it again and again. Just because more people have access to hardcore doesn't make everybody in hardcore equal share owners in the value and the 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 bountiful extra TikTok kids that go on the internet and have the dumbest takes. They don't even have any interest in understanding a deeper element of what the cult culture is. And so I could see people who are starting their hardcore bands and some bands who are already going having no problem with this, but at the core of what O's Punk and Hardcore was like, we don't need this shit. Let's go ahead and play a fucking hall. We'll play this. But it is scary to think that if the government doesn't do something, over time, just a sheer amount of money and power, someone like this could come in and make it harder and harder for even shows that are like three to 500 persons in some rooms in some small cities where the big room is three to 500 it's going to make it harder. So it's important for us to pay attention to this. And I just wanted to point out again, anytime someone is jumping up and down and being like, 
fuck fuck anyone who's keeping people from hardcore it's because they're benefiting from it in some financial way uh with that i'm gonna uh turn it over for the first round of questions to our chair uh senator durbin thanks senator klobuchar mr lawrence i'm going to stick with you for a minute because you made it clear that you do not set the ticket price and mr berktold said he doesn't have anything to do with the ticket price who does set the ticket price that's an excellent question that was actually the thing i was most surprised to hear in um mr berktold's speech because um, we definitely have absolutely no say and if we actually ask the venues in advance which we often do they say that's a ticket master thing so uh, the fees i mean we actually do set sorry the ticket prices the base price the artist does have a say in setting for sure but those added ticket master service fees we have absolutely no say and the venues claim that it's a ticket master mr and you want to add anything to that Thank you. Yes, um, as Mr. Lawrence said, the band sets the ticket price. The service fee level is set by the venue. Um, and you, I, you control the venue. In uh, do you not? Of approximately Live four Nation. of approximately four thousand venues in the United States per Polestar, Live Nation operates approximately two hundred. So uh, roughly five percent of the venues they, in the country. Are they the biggest? No, sir. They're generally uh, not far, not the biggest. The biggest tend to be the sports venues, the arenas, the stadiums. Man, Mr. Live Nation's doing his best to avoid the fact that, oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't own the, the biggest, the biggest arenas. It's like, yeah, no shit, but he's not talking about that. It's always a fun game when you see someone pull the parameters so they don't get jammed up. Very duplicitous. But, yeah. There is a shell game going on with those whole extra tickets. And further along the way, I think they even go into some detail to explain how these tickets go. And and this isn't just Ticketmaster. There's a couple different ticket people, and they do the thing best available. I noticed that on the This Is Hardcore ticket. It was really fucking annoying. Thankfully, we don't have seats, so it's all GA. But it was still fucking annoying to see that there's a system in place that makes it more profitable for the company and harder for the end user. Exactly. Um, Mr. Brooke told, we've heard serious concerns from artists, promoters, venues, that Live Nation's dominance in the concert tour promotion can pressure venues to use Ticketmaster's primary ticketing service exclusively. How else would you explain the fact that Ticketmaster has... 80% of major venues contracts in the U.S. It is absolutely our policy to not pressure, threaten, or retaliate against venues by using content as part of the ticketing discussion. Mr. Uh, Michelson, have you seen Live Nation leveraging its power as the leading concert promoter to pressure venues to use Ticketmaster for primary ticketing? How are they able to do that? When speaking with people that either own or manage venues, their biggest fear is if they leave Ticketmaster, they will lose content. So whether it's said or, or, or not, it's implied that if I don't use Ticketmaster, I am not going to get all the shows that I would like to have. Get it. And, and, and by the way, uh, if you look at the difference between the Target Center in Minneapolis and the XL Energy Center in St. Paul. The Target Center is ticketed by access. The XL Energy Center is ticketed by Ticketmaster. 
Look at the number of shows that play Excel, and you'll see they far exceed the number of shows that play Target. And when you look at and break it down a little farther, you'll see that most of the shows that play Excel are Live Nation shows, and they bring very few to the access-controlled venue, the Target Center. Okay, thanks for that local reference. Um, <laughs> Mr. Burke told, one way that Live Nation eliminates competitive pressures by locking venues into multi-year contracts, whether they three years, five years, seven years. If you've tied up 80% of major concert venues with multi-year contracts, where is there room for one of your competitors to get in the door? Yes, Senator. Um, first, I would note that the 80% reference, I believe, is from a 2008 Department of Justice study, and we believe that our market share is substantially lower than that. Uh, I will. How much lower? Is um, we would um, variety of ways of estimating the market share in the industry, depending on what you include. We believe our market share would be somewhere between the 50 and 60% range. Keep going. Um, yes, I will absolutely acknowledge that it is the standard practice of venues in the United States who own ticketing rights to maximize the value of the ticketing rights they own by having long-term exclusive agreements with primary ticketing companies. Those ticketing contracts tend to last three to five years on average. I would note a very specific indication of the high level of competitiveness is First, that with almost every contract renewal we have over the past decade, more of the money gets accrued to the venues as opposed to the primary ticketing provider, which would be one indicator of a very competitive marketplace. Secondly, I would note the success that SeatGeek had between 2018 and 2022, adding roughly 15% of the NFL and the NBA teams as primary ticketing clients showed the level of movement uh, of these of these clients. Okay, Ms. British, did these type of exclusive contracts, do they shut out competitors? To me, like, if you can't go to anyone else, what are you going to do? And again, there are bands who are not at the arena level, but are working with Live Nation and are taking hits from our culture, and they're doing so with the carrot on the stick of, you know, we're just going to get a little bit bigger and it's going to get a little bit easier, and it's like, no. You know, the bigger the ocean, the bigger the fish. There's always going to be these things. And I do feel like further and further out as commercial success grows in bands, the the further they get from DIY. And the more you hear stuff like this, the more he's like, you can't equate bands that are playing to five to ten thousands every single night with the hardcore scene. It's such vastly different that it's disconnected. And the people never get, the people in the bands, they don't get disconnected. But, you know, the crowd and, and the whole business, it's just not a hardcore thing. And that's why it's all semantics and smoke and mirrors on Twitter when people are like, it's great for everybody. No, it's it's great for a hand few and not the people that put the most of their ass into this whole exactly. thing. Exactly. And I think it's a standard given in antitrust law that the longer the exclusive the longer the exclusivity in a contract the greater the risk of of a competitive effect and the fact that they're able to get these kind this length of contract indicates something about their market power so of course it makes it much harder for a particularly a newer entrant 
to get into the okay. to get into the market if everybody is already tied up. And Mr. Grotzinger, do you think that um, to go to another topic that Live Nation's concert promotion business, the fact that they're combined, um, has made it harder for you to compete um, for primary ticketing with Ticketmaster? Yeah, absolutely, it has. Uh, typically, we'll go to a prospective client. We will show them our technology. They'll get excited. They'll get excited about how it's going to make the experience better for their fans and allow them to run their business better. And then they'll start to think about the concert threat. And they'll talk, and discussions will often close at that point because they've heard or been explicitly threatened mm -hmm. in a way that they know they will lose concerts if they move away from Ticketmaster. And one other thing I'd note that's, I think, particularly scary on that last topic is in response to some of the oversight and poking that has happened recently, we've seen Ticketmaster moving from five years, which used to be the standard length for a contract in our industry, to 10 in many cases. They're trying to lock things down so that if there is more pressure, they've at least signed a lot of these decade-long deals. So there's not a lot of time. If we want competition in this industry, it is already going to be very hard to change. Longer contracts make that even harder, and that is what they've been pushing for recently. There is some benefits if you're a small venue owner to jump in and join teams because the idea is that the big company is going to help fill some rooms and give you dates, but I've never heard of a very good even situation. So being involved in this business practice, even at the venue level, the big the big giant fucks everybody and does whatever it wants because it has these giant contracts. And again, you know, you want to run a room, you want to make sure it stays profitable, you want to do good things. But at the end of the day, you're at the mercy of a conglomerate monopoly that is dominating the industry. What was the amount you said, uh, the percentage of your tickets, some of the highest ones you've had recently that were fees? Typically with Ticketmaster, we'll see a 40%-ish or closer to 50% fee added on top. We have seen really outlandish numbers, like we had a show last spring where there was an 82% fee on top of the base price. And again, we have no say in, in or we don't even know what it's going to be until it goes on sale. Um, Mr. Brookdog, you heard uh, Mr. Lawrence. Um, with Ticketmaster's market power, which we all know exists, we'd be kidding ourselves if we said it didn't exist, why haven't you done more to reduce fees? Well, as I noted in my comments, Senator, the fees are set uh, by the venues. The Live Nation venues have fees that are consistent with the other venues in the marketplace and cover the cost of the operation of those venues. And Mr. Lawrence wants to reply. Um, we definitely ask venues before almost every show what's the ticket fee going to be, both venues that Live Nation owns and ones that they just operate, and they always certainly don't take responsibility for the fees. So I'm not, I don't know who is doing the fees, but we ask that question to the venues and they say, not only do we not choose what it is, we don't even know what it is. We can't even tell you what it's going to be. So I don't know where the answer lies, but no okay. one's taking responsibility. Last word, Ms. Bradish. Um, transparency would be helpful to know what the fees are. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. The market can't work well without transparency. Well, that's clearly there isn't transparency when no one knows who sets the fees. Yes. Okay, with that, uh, Senator Cornyn. You know the shit's getting shady where he just keeps saying, no, 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 we don't have anything to do with it. It's this one. We're not the ones who do the fees. But again, going back to the end user, 
when you're a band that's only playing to 50 to 100 people, you may know most of the people in the room or at least seen them before. You start playing to these mindless, faceless masses. You don't really care if you're, if the person who's paying to see your band is charged 82% more than the, the, the ticket price. Because you don't know them. You just want your money. But the trick is you don't get your money. The, the company's just making more of it. Again, more more ridiculous capitalism and more ridiculous scenarios that somebody on Twitter like, no, no, it's good for the city. It's good for everyone. Ticket fees are good for everyone, right? Mr. Berktold, I'm, I'm intrigued by a couple of your statements. You said that uh, you have an artist-first business model, and then you would later said you would never put your interests ahead of theirs. Um, is that your testimony? Yes, Senator, that is the approach of our business. The culturally, we believe that it's all about getting that artist on stage, letting them connect with their fans, and we believe if we support that and consistently act that way, then we will have a long and successful business working with artists um, and providing them services. I guess without the artists, you would not have a business. That's correct, sir. Mr. Lawrence, has that been your experience that um, Live Nation uh, never puts their interests ahead of the artists and that they have an artist-first business model? I think generally when we show up to play a show, the people that work for Live Nation at the venue absolutely, you know, try to be partners to us in putting on the best concert. I think that the places where sometimes maybe you could feel like it's not artist first is just in the structure of the way some of the deals with the artists, when you look at the settlement sheet at the end of the night, where uh, which breaks down who gets paid what, some of those line items where we have no say in setting any of the prices of those things, yet some of them are Live Nation directly setting the price for things that they are paying to other entities that they might own, which directly impacts the profit pool from which the artist's pay is being derived. Those are the moments where, I wouldn't say it's not artists first, I mean, who's to say, but like those are the moments where it feels like we're not truly aligned in our incentives. Well, with for your band to make six bucks out of a $42 ticket price. Yeah, that doesn't feel great. doesn't strike me as artists first. I would agree with that. Um, Mr. Berktold, you talked about how many, how few venues that um, Live Nation actually owns, but the truth is that you have these, I think you alluded to this, you have these long-term exclusive rights contracts with uh, many venues that you don't actually own uh, or that you have some sort of partial ownership where you have effective, at least contractual control over those venues. Is that correct? Yeah, Senator, if I could differentiate on the ticketing side and the ticketing contracts as opposed to on the promotion side. So on the promotion side of the business, which Senator Klobuchar was asking about, there are roughly 4,000 venues in the United States. Um, roughly 200 of them we operate, often don't own the underlying business, but operate the buildings. And then we have roughly 40 more uh, buildings with which we have an exclusive promoter relationship. So. It's a very, that's a very small portion of the market for venues. So whether or not you actually own the venue, you do have effective influence and maybe in some cases outright control over what the venue 
charges in terms of the ticket price, correct? In, in roughly 240 buildings or five or 6% of the markets are yes. Mr. Mickelson, um, why is it so hard for the average consumer to get access to tickets and who benefits from less consumer access? Is it not the artist, I assume? That's a good question, Senator. Um, let's take the Taylor Swift um, uh, fiasco as an example. The fans had to sign up through verified fan to be able to even buy a ticket. Uh, Ticketmaster knew that the demand was enormous, uh, bigger, larger than almost any other show. And um, when they set the tickets up for sale, um, there's two ways you can do that. You can set the tickets so that they are best available, which means that you'll sell more tickets because the fans don't have a choice, or you can do pick a seat where it slows the process down. The process, when it's slowed down, increases the money that Ticketmaster makes because they make money on fees, and as the ticket prices go up due to dynamically priced tickets, Ticketmaster makes more to that. So it's to their advantage to slow the process down and to do pick a seat so that it created the frenzy that drove the prices up, which again, they're getting, Ticketmaster's getting a percentage of that fee. And the higher the ticket price, the higher the fee. So I think that it was driven by as, uh, the, the corporate bottom line in the Taylor Swift fiasco, Ticketmaster's bottom line. I guess line. I... I've been getting sarcastic or hard on this subject, but I need to say that, yeah, the bands need to get paid. The fans need to get, not to get ripped off. But, of course, the company needs to make money. But when they're creating these systems and these trick, fucked-up fees, it, you know, it, it's no longer in fairness. It's it's because what else are you going to do? You know, the venue, you know, the venue is owned by this massive company, as you keep hearing. So they're able to fucking just write up whatever bullshit to keep, you know, a tax tax and a, a sock tax and all this other fucking nonsense. You know, this is the stuff that when the bands who can no longer play in the 500 person room, they start getting to the thousand and the 2000, sometimes the three or 5,000, they get subject, sub, uh, subjected to this and they're not even really privy to it because they're so far removed from the dealings. So it's, it's important to understand that the bands aren't really reaping anything from it aside from they're playing for more people but you know as they say more money more problems you um mentioned in your testimony today that when artists like you play a live nation venue you typically are also required to use Ticketmaster and a live nation owned promoter if that were not the expectation what would the difference you think be for uh, your band and your fans well if we had the ability to weigh different offers then we would just be able to see a more apples to apples comparison of what kind of deals we could get in a given venue but you're correct in saying that yes when we pick a given venue if it's a venue that live nation is either the exclusive promoter or the f operator or the owner of there's no opportunity but to just receive uh a deal that we have no uh, ability to negotiate from Live Nation. And yes, the tickets have to be ticketed by Ticketmaster. There's a, you know, it would be great to be able to find out, oh, if it was this ticketing company, it might be a different 
fee or I know Mr. Berchold saying that the venue sets the fee, which has not been our experience, but you know, ideally we'd be able to see, Could Oh, you, if it was this company, it would be this or whatever. Say a little bit more about how that has not been your experience. It's a hundred percent not been our experience. Yeah. I, there's literally not been a single time in our career when we've played at a, at a live nation venue where we had any opportunity to not have live nation be the promoter or not have Ticketmaster be the ticketing company. Have you heard of, um, any other artists who've been able to figure out a way around that? Or do you think that um, all artists are up against the same wall that you've described of inevitability? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, no one's had a different experience than me. I know at the highest levels of playing like stadiums or arenas, there might be an opportunity to have a certain promoter come in and do that arena. But I don't, that's not my area. In terms of. In time, Mr. Lawrence, in yeah, time. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> I like that he was humble and saying, you know, it's not really my area. And it just goes to show you that you really do have to rise to the point where you're like a Bruce Springsteen or a Lady Gaga, someone that could do a fucking arena where you could turn this whole crazy fucking ship around. And again, I'm not telling you, to, you know, don't ever play a big room. I book a fucking hardcore show and I have been since 2006 in a room that is the same size. It's not a size. It's the business relationships. It's the way that the bands have control of the whole atmosphere. So that way it stay it stays within the culture. You know, like, yeah, there's tons of people now that know about Turnstile, but if you go to that Turnstile show, you're not at a hardcore show. Not because the dudes in Turnstile aren't hardcore people, because most of the room don't even know what the fuck hardcore is. They're a rock concert. And if you're a rock concert person, that's great. I like seeing Iron Maiden. If everybody keeps putting cameras out and holds their fucking arm in the air, I'll never go to a rock concert again because it's fucking boring seeing all these dickheads with the cell phones out. But it, too many people are conflating the growth of hardcore and the commercialization and being like, this is all good. It's semantics. And it's people rooting for what they want and pushing it on everybody else. And I think that this is just a cool way to listen at the Senate floor on just how fucked up the entire industry is and how, you know, everyone, you know, there there is a glass ceiling, so to speak, is what I'm, I guess I'm getting to in too many stupid words. Uh, thank you to everyone for being here today. Uh, Mr. Berktold, I want to congratulate and thank you for an absolutely stunning achievement. You have brought together Republicans and Democrats in an absolutely unified cause. And may I suggest respectfully that unfortunately your approach today in this hearing is going to solidify that cooperation because as I hear and read what you have to say, it's basically, it's not us. It's everyone but us. And the fact of the matter is that Live Nation, Ticketmaster, is the 800-pound gorilla here. You have clear dominance, monopolistic control. This whole concert ticket system is a mess. It's a monopolistic mess. And the numbers refute many of your arguments. That's the reason we've had 
two, count them, two consent decrees, and why the Justice Department is now investigating violations of that second consent decree. Uh, Ticketmaster had the temerity to imply that the debacle involved in pre-ticket sales was Taylor Swift's fault because she was failing to do too many concerts. And may I suggest respectfully that Ticketmaster ought to look in the mirror and say, I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> and the reason is quite simply that you are the ones ultimately responsible for the astronomically rising prices, the exorbitant hidden fees, the sold out shows, the bots and scalpers. We just had an exchange with Senator Blackburn. You've reported once over this entire history, once an instance involving bots. I agree with Senator Blackburn that there needs to be stronger enforcement by the FTC. It has taken almost no action against the bots, despite our support for the Bots Act. And that is the reason why I am supporting legislation, talking about remedies, legislation called the Boss Act, which would require transparency, accountability for hidden fees, for bots. Will you support the bot? Boss Act. Um, yes, Senator, we would absolutely agree that. I'm sorry. Uh, Senator, we absolutely agree there are a lot of problems in this industry. And as the leading player, we have an obligation to do better. Uh, if Will I've, you support the Boss Act? I don't know all of the specific elements. Um, I know there are many elements that we agree upon. I believe there are some issues that we have some differing views, and uh, we've offered to discuss those. We'd like to continue to discuss those going forward. Will you support legislation to require complete transparency all in to provide stronger enforcement powers against bots and scalpers? We absolutely support all-in pricing. We absolutely support greater enforcement, greater penalties, an expansion of the prohibition on bots. You know, uh, the FTC has failed in some of its enforcement duties, but that is because Live Nation, Ticketmaster, have failed to do the reporting that's required to enable enforcement. And I think that really betrays the contention that you have been active against it. And I think that consumers and artists and venues are all fed up with the system that exists right now. Uh, and I think to the people who are fed up, I would say continue your criticism if you're this angry. This is where it kind of just rattles on. This is like towards the end. I really hope that I didn't bore the fuck out of you, but I find all this to be very interesting. And there is good in some of the stuff. There's bad in some of the stuff that they go through. But it's two hours and 53 minutes. I'll have the link up if you want to check it out. Thank you to Sonny for sending me the audio stripped from the YouTube in some wizard way that he does. And this is just to kind of like give you 
some look if you haven't wanted to look into like this is what goes on. And um, yeah, if you're like I wouldn't go off of what he was saying. Yeah, if you're fed up, fed up, keep fighting. That was the cool thing about all this shit in the start. You didn't need. You don't need live nations. You just go fucking play. Look what they were doing in California. Look what they were doing in California during the pandemic. Look what they're still doing in California. You know, I just don't like the idea ultimately. And I was thinking about because I just keep like rattling on and interjecting, but I'm not really being clear and just kind of mouthing off here. But I don't want to build a fucking bridge to where hardcore is hand in hand with these dickheads. It's not the whole fucking point. It's not what this is about. You know, like it's cool. Hey, you want to pay my friend some couple thousand dollars? They play some big shows. Their bands get a little bigger. But like being fucking kumbaya with an evil corporation just is fucking sacrosanct to everything that ever happened with hardcore. And especially when they're openly fucking the fans, the people that are already going to buy your T-shirt. If If a hardcore show got to the point where it was so expensive you couldn't afford the t-shirt. That's crazy. Because, again, there's this money that's not going to the touring band. There's so many things that are fucked up and wrong with it. And, and, and again, this is like an exploded example, you know, maybe taken to a crazy degree. But, like, this is a an entity that needs to be understood. Like, as people keep saying, like, this is great for hardcore Oh yeah, cool. We'll just only play Live Nation venues. Ticketmaster will control all the show ticketing. People pay absurd amounts of things, and then, like as the guy said, forty-two dollar ticket, but twelve goes to the band. Now I'm not saying if I did a twenty-five dollar show, twenty dollars will go to the band, but a lot more. It's like about keeping it in our community, keeping the things going. And again, I don't begrudge anyone and any band for getting bigger, writing cooler songs. You know, living out your dream of playing music. But when it starts to get conflated into, like, the ethics and, you know, the the culture of hardcore. Yeah, I'm sure Agnostic Front and Madball have no problem when they play in front of a huge European audience. Because they get paid for what they do. And there's a lot of older hardcore people that would die on the cross of... Fuck it, you know, like we've worked our whole time in life for this, but at the same time, I've, you know, I've been on them uh, dumb stages in Europe, and it's nothing like playing a room where some weird little asshole kid could probably kick you in the chest or nuts because there's no real good stage. Maybe this is just how I look at things, but I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go back and forth and chime in and let you guys listen in because I don't know how many is hip to this, but. I, Again, hardcore belongs exactly where it's always fucking been. And I really hope that those of you who ride out for the real bands continue to do so. And that doesn't mean that you can't check out all this more pop music that's getting disguised as hardcore or these wolves in sheep's clothing coming in and calling themselves DIY, but they already got a manager, a publicist, and a booking agent. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm saying don't don't start signing us all up for being fucking corporate shills just because a handful of people are hoping to make it out of the underground into the big leagues and never have to deal with us ever again. Um, thank you. Uh, notes at com. 
Lots of awesome shows all over the place. Uh, make sure you go see the GB shows that Greg has just put out. Again, this is Hardcore 8, 4, 5, 6. Also, there's still tickets for the Hardcore Pride weekend. And the Tsunami show still has tickets. Bob Wilson, the fucking killer. The man. Hardcore is in a great place without Ticketmaster, without Live Nation, without Barricades. And without all this bullshit. But if people are going to keep uh, extolling the virtues of all this shit, I'm going to keep shitting all over it. Thank you for listening. Take care. In our minds and in our hearts, we feel that hardcore music should stay out of big business and stay in the streets where it belongs. All you kids out there, always keep the faith.